Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. I've done over 550 of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the website, batgap.com. My guest today is Louise Kay. Welcome, Louise. Thanks. You're welcome. Louise was born in Blackburn, Lancashire. And if that place doesn't remind you of a song, then you have a gaping hole in your musical upbringing and you need to, you need to <laughs> Google it because <laughs> it was a, a lyric in one of the best rock songs ever written. I'm not even going to tell you what it is. You have to pique your curiosity if you don't know what it is. <laughs> but in any case, Blackburn, Lancashire is in the northwest of the UK near Liverpool, which that should give you a hint. After graduating from university, she worked as an English teacher for 15 years and during this time began to question the deeper meaning of life. This led her to the path of spirituality where she found a strong resonance with the teachings of non-duality. In her early 30s, Louise felt a deep call in her heart to visit India where she experienced a profound spiritual awakening. Shortly afterwards, Louise began channeling and traveling the world sharing this gift for several years. During this time, she experienced a deepening and integration of her initial spiritual awakening. And as she opened more to this non-dual truth, the channeling faded away, and a new form of expression revealed itself from deep in her heart. Louise now holds group events and retreats around the world and offers embodied awareness private sessions. Her passion is to sit together in presence and hold gentle, unconditionally loving space for all emotions, all sensations, and all experiences which arise in the moment in order to support the integration of unresolved energies and allow the unfolding of the divine in all who feel the call. Now, initially, Louise said, eh, I don't want to talk so much about my personal stuff. Let's talk about living in the present moment, recognizing our true self, integration of our emotional traumas, and how the way we relate with our inner outer experience affects our state of being. And I kind of pleaded and cajoled her a little bit and said, yeah, yeah, we can talk about all that. But let's, <laughs> can we also talk about your personal stuff? Because it's interesting. She said, all right, yeah, we can talk about everything. So that's what we're going to do. We have plenty of time. And... Um, Already a couple of questions have come in from people in the previous days, and you know those listening are welcome to send in more questions, and we'll, we'll get into them. It's funny, you know, one thing I said to Louise in emails prior to in previous days was, I can't figure out your accent. You know, you don't sound like you're from near Liverpool. You don't sound like the Beatles at all. You have this unusual accent. There's a little bit of, you sound a little bit like Neelam, who's Polish. And <laughs> and she said, oh, yeah, she said, I've done so many different things and traveled all over the world and taught English as a second language. She said, my accent is totally, totally screwed up. But anyway, you've been around. You just told me you have this beautiful earring thing on. Show people that thing. It's yeah. really cool. She said she got that in Brazil when she was down there. Who was it made by? The indigenous women in the Amazon. Yeah. I don't remember the name of the exact tribe. Really neat. So let's take it from the top and feel free. You know, the way I like these interviews are very conversational. So you don't just have to respond to my questions. If something comes up that you'd like to talk about, just go at it. Don't wait for me to ask. Let's start a little bit chronologically. And... Um, 
this is a good opening question. A lot of people I interview had some inklings, even as little children, that there was something different about them. You know, they were super sensitive or they had some kind of subtle perception or everyone in the world around them looked crazy or they felt like they were in unity or something or other. And then that usually faded during their teenage years and then they rediscovered it when they got a little older. So was there anything like that for you? Yeah, definitely. I was an ultra-sensitive child. Were you, like, super just, emotional, or, or how, how, how ultra-sensitive? Like, I wasn't crying all the time, but my parents told me that if they just said, like, they didn't even need to scold me. If they just said, like, Louise, don't do that, then I would cry. And I was also kind of physically sensitive. Like, uh, my skin would, like, flare up in rushes if chemicals touched me. So it was like on multiple levels, I experienced this sensitivity. I was just kind of like very, very gentle as a child. And it was challenging for me to be around stress or when people were projecting anger, just like, it was like I felt everything. And something in me just felt like this, this, something's not right about this. I didn't know what it was, but just a general feeling of doesn't feel right. This isn't how it's supposed to be. I was very, very childlike also. And as the other kids started to mature in kind of teenage behaviors, I never really could relate to that. So the other kids were interested in like experimenting with drugs and alcohol and it just didn't make any sense to me. And I was like 14 at home and still interested in playing with Legos. (laughs) 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 Something didn't kind of mature or develop in that way. And I never really went through that teenage experience You didn't miss anything, let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, somehow, even into adulthood, something never really kind of matured or developed. This is one of the the big parts of my uh, transformation in my spiritual journey, that it was not just like a spiritual awakening. I experienced a lot of integration of trauma. I'm, I'm jumping on now, but we can come back. But I also experienced what seems like maturing on a human level as a human being and and kind of that childlikeness kind of caught up with the rest of me. You know, you do have a gentle air about you and kind of an innocent quality, I I think. And, you know, Christ's famous saying, except you be as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So uh, I think it's good. Most of us got all crazy when we were teenagers and in many cases did you know, a bunch of damage that had to be repaired later on. So um, you were spared that, it seems. And congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of brought different bunch of challenges with it. But yeah, I yeah. think. There's an old Bengali saying, which is that if no one comes on your call, then go ahead alone. And, you know, what that means to me is that, you know, if you have to live a a solitary life because you just can't relate to all the people around you and what they're doing, then so be it. 
much much better to do that than be a conformist and do stupid things just because everybody else is doing them. Yeah, there's another nice one. I think it's Buckminster Fuller, is it? And he says, to be well adjusted to a sick society is not a good measure of health, something like that. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. I saw him speak one time. And then there's that Rudyard Kipling poem, to keep your head when all about you are losing theirs, some line mm-hmm. like that. So anyway, that's good. Yeah, I see it as a blessing, personally, to be able to hang on, not through trying, but spontaneously retain that sort of innocence and purity that, that you came in with, which is challenging. I mean, it's a, it's a wild world. There's so yeah. much bombarding us. I kind of feel like the super sensitivity was a blessing, too, because it kept you yeah. from bumbling into stuff that you otherwise might have, but it, you, you, mm-hmm. you immediately had a reaction, so you recoiled from it. Sounds like a, a good, good thing. Yeah, I, I, my system developed, like everybody, kind of survival mechanisms and ways to, unconscious ways to get through, to survive this challenging world. And through the awakening process, those were revealed in the light of consciousness and they they started to fall away because they were, they were not necessary anymore. My system kind of learned how to, or remembered how to operate in its natural way. Yeah, that's great. Just a quick comment, which is that, you know, I think some people's systems, they're not only very impressionable, but they also are kind of sticky. They retain the impressions easily. And others are more porous. The thing, you feel the thing, it passes through you, but then it doesn't cling to you. Did stuff start happening to you, which you would now recognize as sort of spiritual awakening, but at the time you didn't know what in the heck it was? No, not really that I remember like that. I think in my early 20s was when I started to question the deeper meaning and investigate this underlying feeling that I'd always had. What's up here? What's what's the real meaning of all this? What's, what's going on? What's the purpose of life? Who am I? And at some point, I think for me, one of the, the major kind of turning points was I came across the book The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle and when I read that book it affected me in two very profound ways the first one was I for the first time in my life recognized that I was able to observe my thoughts and that created some kind of separation and the other one was I was able to feel and experience for the first time what he refers to as the the energy body, because he points to these things in the book. And interestingly, those two aspects now are the things that I focus on in, in the sessions, the embodied awareness sessions that I do with people. So that was really profound stepping stone in my personal journey, reading that book. And I always recommend it to people now. Yeah, it's a good book. There must have been more developing before you took off for India. What what led up to that departure? Mm. Yeah, I'm just trying to remember kind of the chronological sure. order because it's quite some years ago now. I actually came to Amsterdam where I am now and uh, I'd gotten divorced and I came to Amsterdam for kind of a fresh start. I felt called to come in here. And this 
feeling started to grow, like this call to go to India, and I heard about the the spiritual side of it, and something in me felt interested in it. And at that time, when I was in Amsterdam, I also met my partner Gilad, and in a way, he was kind of one of my first spiritual teachers because he was much further down the rabbit hole than me at that point. He'd been going to satsangs and doing Vipassana retreats. He, he spent two years in India on a motorbike. And and I was just like thirsty for more. And, and he really kind of opened the door to me to a lot of information that I was ready to hear. And then Ami came to town. So you're behind me here, huh? Yeah. And I didn't really know much about her, but I felt interested and I went along. And that was really like my first taste of India, going there in this huge hall and they're playing the, the bhajans and it's really got this India feel. And I loved it. I waited hours and hours I mean you've been you know how it is and finally I think it was like 3 a.m I I I was in line and I got this hug from her and it (laughs) it was really strong it 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 hit me and I felt a bit like whoa I need to go and lie down and there was this like back room where you could just go rest or whatever I think some people were sleeping there and I just went lay down on a mat and I closed my eyes and this purple light appeared like a tunnel opening up here and I felt this rush of energy and then I heard this voice, go to India, what you seek, you shall find there. And I knew it wasn't my voice. And it was only when I last year went to see Amma again for a second time that I realized it was Amma communicating telepathically with me because she did it again and I realized but it, it was very powerful when I heard those words, like it struck right in my heart and something in me knew, I have to go. I'd been feeling this call and, and that was like the turning point for me. It kind of gives me goosebumps hearing you say that because I've had so many experiences with Ama like that where, you know, I mean, people think, oh, that's cute. She hugs people. Yeah, I'll give her a hug. She can give me a hug. But, you know, it's this something much more profound going on and, uh, you know, the level of insight that she has, even in 30 seconds of interacting with a person and the impact that that can have on their lives is really quite remarkable. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Okay, so that was a wake-up call. And um, so you managed <laughs> to get to India. Um, yeah, I quit my job. I left my apartment. I got a one-way plane ticket. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know how long I was going to stay or... So, so tell us a bit about that adventure, inwardly and outwardly. Yeah, I think uh, India is really something else, and it's not something you can... Before I went, many people who'd been said to me, you can't explain it, you won't know it, you won't understand it until you've been. Yeah. And I was like, what are you talking about? I know what India's like, I've seen it on TV, I know what to expect. And when I got there, I really understood what they were talking about. I'm curious, as a sensitive person, what was your first impression when you landed in India and sort of got out of the airport and the feeling in the atmosphere? Complete and utter shock. (laughs) 
it's like landing in another planet. The intensity is just so overwhelming. And at that time, my system kind of hadn't integrated a lot. Like, uh, like had, it had is not now. integrated. Yes, it had right. not. So, for example, if I heard loud noises, it was really overwhelming. Like I would have to cover my ears. And everybody's blowing their horns. Like, I've never taken acid, but I imagine that walking through those streets of Parak Ganj in, in Delhi is, like, similar to taking acid. Like the, the, <laughs> Sensory the overload. Smells, and people coming in your face trying to, from all directions, photo, money, <laughs> trying to sell you something. I was, like, in a, in a trance like this. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, my boyfriend was just kind of leading me. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. The reason I asked that question is when I first went there, there was that, the noise and the dirt and the craziness. But there was also something in the atmosphere. Maybe I was just a mood maker or maybe I was imagining it. But there was something subtle in the atmosphere that I I didn't feel in the West. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. There's something about India it's like divinities in the air. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it opens your heart somehow. Uh-huh. Uh, there's definitely this magical, mystical quality. Some to kind it. of softness, and, deep softness. Yeah, yeah. I think it's because it's so ingrained in their culture and they have such a deep understanding of these spiritual truths. It's, it's kind of commonplace for them in a way. They really do. I've been participating in a webinar with Swami Sarvapriyananda, who's a leader of the Vedanta Society, and mostly it's Indians in the webinar, a few Westerners. But I'm so impressed with a lot of the questions that all these Indians are asking. They're just like, holy mackerel, they, they really have this stuff in their blood, you know? Yeah. And you feel it. It's everywhere. Yeah, yeah. You're walking down the streets and you hear chants in and bad chance, and they're just singing to pray for the awakening of all humans on the planet. It's incredible. Which is not to say that there isn't a lot of poverty and there are rip-off artists and all kinds of crazy Absolutely, stuff. Yeah. I mean, the whole spectrum of humanity. But there is yeah. definitely that element there that is... It's you know. definitely a country of extremes. Yeah. You just see everything. You see on every corner, it's just a new shock that you could never imagine that you would see it. I think that's one of the beautiful things about it, why it kind of keeps you living in the present moment when you're in India, because you've got to stay present in a way, because there's just so much activity going on all around you and, and so much to catch your attention. It's this aliveness that's there. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned you had an awakening there. What was that? Yeah, so I went to Rishikesh, the foothills of the Himalaya. I was going to a few different teachers that are there, and one of the teachers I was going to was a satsang with Muji, and I went there pretty much every day for six weeks. One day I was just following his pointings. <laughs> <laughs> It was like the mind was transcended in that moment is the best way I can describe it. And after that, I experienced some days of 
feeling like everything was a dream and nothing felt real and things never really went back to how they were before after that experience. Yeah. You already said, you said you were already a little kind of spacey in a way. Um, so did you get even more spacey after that? And did it take you quite a while to integrate or stabilize that? No, I don't think I became more spacey. I think the opposite started to happen. I think um, as more there was more awareness and more consciousness in the system, there was more and more clear seeing of contractions in the body and unconscious patterns that were playing out. And there was this real, like, single-pointed attitude or focus that this is the path of truth and this is what is required. And so every little thing that came up, like everything that triggered the system was like it was used to deepen and to surrender deeper. And as that was happening, a lot of integration and transformation was taking place. So that spaciness kind of became more and more grounded and the system started to integrate and become more clear. And I mean, it's still, it's still going on. Yeah. I think it's a lifelong process really. It seems to me that it's infinite. You have a blog post entitled challenges gateways for growth. Kind of reminded me what you just said, reminded me of that. Yeah. There's a recognition that, When we experience challenges in life, our mind tends to project that life's not serving me or something's going wrong or this shouldn't be happening. But really life is supporting us because when we zoom out from the limitations of that little mental box and, and we're able to understand the bigger picture that what's happening is the unfolding of consciousness then from that perspective, there's a recognition that each challenge is like a mirror or an opportunity for us to deepen in presence and see something where maybe we're acting out some unconscious pattern or some unconscious behavior. There's a gift for us in every challenge if we have the eyes to see it. Yeah. One thing that helps me in that regard is that I'm more or less constantly aware that the universe isn't dumb matter. It's sort of the divine play. Everything is permeated with the divine. And so things don't happen arbitrarily or randomly or accidentally. Everything is imbued with intelligence. And every little thing from the falling of a leaf to the crash of two cars or anything that happens is somehow part of this cosmic dance. And in my opinion, everything is ultimately designed for our evolution, for our growth, even though it might not seem that way in the narrow picture. But if we could sort of expand out enough and see the big picture, we would realize that all is well and wisely put. Yeah, and part of our spiritual maturing is when we give up that effort to control life and manipulate life and demand that life be a certain way 
and we give over that power to this divine intelligence, it can run things, it can run the show much more efficiently than our mind. Yeah. There's a definition of humility I once heard, which is that humility is the quality of not insisting that things happen any particular way. And if you think about it, I mean, people are always talking about not acting from ego and letting, you know, let go and let God and all that stuff. You know, if you do insist that things happen in a particular way, then you're, you're not letting go and letting God. You're trying to run the show and, and you, your own individual intelligence is so limited compared with the, the cosmic intelligence that just throwing a monkey wrench in the works, as they say. Someone named Natalie from the Midlands in the UK asked, um, I live more and more in a state of presence, and I find it difficult to take the world out there, in quotes, seriously, which is a good thing for me. I am joyful, lighthearted. Some people think I'm uncaring and lack compassion when I refuse to join in their stories of fear and victimhood. How can I best support them at this time and yet stay true to my vibe? Yeah, there's a lot of fear getting triggered in the collective right now. Oftentimes when other people are experiencing challenging emotions, their system gets overwhelmed by fear or anxiety or anger or sadness. If we're sensitive and we're able to feel them, it can feel uncomfortable in us. And so often the mind wants to change that inner experience and it says, oh, this doesn't feel good, I don't want to feel like this. So the way that I I want to escape this feeling is by making them change. And then we can try to convince them to behave differently or try to fix them or heal them or change them some way. And really what that is is just an escapism from the experience of the now. And when we're able to fully surrender to our own inner experience and open to what it touches in us, and we do feel other people when they're in pain because we're connected to them, and so to feel the pain of another is to feel the pain of me because there is no other. It's all me. And then we can just very gently oh, there's there's some contraction, there's a tightness here, there's anxiousness in the belly. Be very gentle with that. Our system begins to hold a space of unconditional love for their system. And their system begins to feel seen and validated. And we don't even have to say anything. It's all taking place on the felt sense. So their system can begin to open and relax just from feeling the peace that's emanated by us being deeply present and anchored in being. Yeah, I mean, look at your experience with Amma and mine. I mean, there's somebody who is really anchored in being. You get into her vicinity and boom, it shifts your whole awareness just because Mm. it's, it's not like she's doing anything to you. It's just that she creates she enlivens an uh, atmosphere around her that everyone else kind of entrains with or aligns with, which is quite transformative. Just using that as an example of what you just said. Another question came in that's kind of similar, so let's ask this one. 
This is from Angela in Inverness, which I guess is in Scotland, right? How do you overcome feelings of guilt regarding all the people suffering so much in the world? I have felt this since I was a child and have devoted myself to a life of service to others as a nurse. I still feel like I can't be happy when my fellow humans are suffering. Mm, well, if we're not happy because other people are suffering, then we're becoming part of the suffering. So it's not helping at all. The key is to disidentify from the thoughts that are running in the mind. And usually the thoughts are something along the line of there's so much suffering in this world. I can't live with all this suffering. I need to fix the world. It shouldn't be like this. Some kind of negative thread running through it. And when we identify with that story and believe it, then our system responds to that and generates emotions of a matching vibration, you could say. So we start to feel depressed or hopeless. When we begin to disidentify from the thoughts and draw our attention back and recognize that these are just thoughts passing through and it's nothing to do with me, I am the open space of awareness and sensations are rising in the system. We gently open to feeling and allowing the sensations. And we let go of any idea that anything needs to change or be different than it is. Then instantly there's peace. It's only our idea that things shouldn't be like this. When we believe that, that we start to suffer. And when we're at peace, we start to contribute to the collective peace. Like you were saying, Rick, we begin to emanate a peace and a joyfulness, a lightness, and others are affected by it. Yeah, I mean, I always, when that point comes up, I always think, well, if you can't swim, you're not going to make a very good lifeguard. If you think of it like if Jesus or Buddha or Ramana or any of these people had, had the perspective of, oh, my God, there's so many suffering people around me. I, what am I going to do? I, it's really bumming me out. You know, I'm, 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 get, I'm starting to suffer, too, because of them. I mean, how much help would they have been <laughs> to, to all the people who came to them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's really about em- embodying the, the teachings and living it moment to moment. And regardless of circumstance or experiences, because inner peace is always accessible to us when we inquire into our deeper nature, that which is here before thought or before any experience or before any sensation arises, then there's a shift in our perspective, a shift in our attention where we recognize there is this background stillness. And that its very nature is peace. And there is no separation between that and me. That's, that's what I am. Most of us just believe that we're the body or 
the conceptual self, the story that we told about ourselves, and that causes us to suffer because we perceive reality through a filter of separation where there's me and all the others. And with the simple shift, there's a recognition that that's not me and I am this formless essence, this infinite spaciousness. You know, I was actually going to ask you a question about this, but when I hear you say that, I very strongly get the impression that you're not speaking hypothetically. You know, you do have a quality about you that seems very genuinely peaceful and radiates that quality. If you could, could you describe your subjective experience? Like right now, what is it like to be Louise? (laughs) Well, if anybody really looks with fresh eyes and honesty, they will discover the same thing because it's the same for all of us, that what is here is awareness perceiving and the sounds are perceived. And we don't need to try to hear sounds. It's just happening all by itself. We can't even stop hearing them. Images, colors, shapes are perceived. And it's the same thing. We don't need to try it's happening automatically and this body's breathing and it's performing all kinds of intelligent functionings all by itself so some thoughts arise and pass through everything is happening by itself the intelligence of life is dancing and awareness perceives that Good. So it's like Eckhart Tolle said, you know, in The Power of Now. I don't know how people take Eckhart Tolle's teachings to heart, but I would say that it's not something one needs to try to do or anything like that. It should somehow ideally become one's natural way of functioning. Well, here's a question that came in. How do we get from here to there? Let's say it's people. some people might say, sounds good, but it's not working for me. I don't sort of feel like I'm able to function the way Louise is describing or the way Eckhart Tolle described. And here's a question from Rajiv in India who asks, um, is there a need to do any type of spiritual practices and meditations if there is no psychological suffering arising in a mind-body organism? And we could just modify his question slightly because whether or not there's psychological suffering you know what is your attitude toward the importance or efficacy of spiritual practices as a way of helping to develop the style of functioning that you've just described i mean i can just speak from personal experience to me what seems to be The key component is a deep interest in awakening and a willingness to give everything to that. Everything. Like the willingness to die for that, that level of willingness. I want this more than anything else. And that often expresses itself in not a desire from the mind, 
but a longing from deep in the heart, like this longing for truth. And it's almost like a yearning quality. And to feel that call to to know oneself as God, I don't think that can be manufactured. It just comes if it comes when it's the right moment. And to practice as much as possible, living every single moment fully present. Just perceiving what's here right now. The breath, the sounds, the images, and the thoughts. And whatever thought arises, not to take it as the truth. To allow the attention to rest as the silence or the spaciousness beyond thought. And to become aware of the inner body and the sensations in the body. And whenever there's a contraction or a tightness, to very gently bring the attention into the body and just open to feeling it and allowing it to be there, being present with it. That allows for the release of unprocessed emotions or blocked energies from the physical and energetic body. And to practice self-inquiry. So to ask, who am I? What is it that's perceiving What is here when there is no thought? What is it that is aware? Is there any separation between me and that which is aware? What is it that knows, experience, this kind of inquiry? So kind of a combination of this. That triggered two questions in my mind. One is that when I hear people say what you just said, I sometimes think about, the importance of not only feeling or processing whatever comes up, but increasing the capacity to do so. And it's like, you know, if you had a a cup of water and you have a handful of mud and you throw it in the cup of water, it's just going to be totally muddy. But if you throw that handful of mud into an ocean or a large lake, it, it has the capacity to dissolve it. So I think you know where I'm going with this. So what, what would you say to that? Yeah, so when we start this practice of being aware of the energies in the body and present in the body, often we initially become aware of an underlying sense of anxiety, something that feels uncomfortable, and contraction or tightness in the system. When we become aware of it, it can feel worse than when we we weren't present in the body, but it was still there. It's just we become more aware of it. As we begin to consciously feel it, our system opens up and these energies begin to release. And usually they release in layers. And the system has a natural intelligence. So it kind of knows how much it's capable of processing at any given time. And bring some up and then there'll be a release and then usually a a period of integration which can often be interpreted by the mind as what happened to my spiritual journey i was experiencing so much energies everything stopped slowed down but no the system 
is processing and it's preparing for the next deepening or the next level, which is bubbling up. And I often use this analogy with people when I I have this program called Integrating Emotional Trauma. It's one of the uh, focuses of the work I do with people is meeting these energies and allowing them to release from the system in a healthy, gentle, loving way. Because if we don't know how to meet it, it can be really overwhelming. And I often talk about this analogy of uh, a soda bottle, that if you shake it up and then you take the lid off, it's just going to... So all this energy will just come out and overwhelm the system. When we're in tune with the system and, and the body's natural intelligence, we can turn the lid a little bit and then some energy releases and then we wait and turn it a a little bit more and it releases in a healthy gradual natural way so i tell people don't be in a rush to get to that end point it's not about getting to the end point when i'm healed or everything's fixed or this energy is released it's that's another trap of the mind that I'm awakened when such and such happens. The recognition of our true nature is instantaneous when there's that shift in the focus of attention to the background stillness, I am that, and there's peace. And from there, we begin to include the sensations to allow for the integration and the release of trauma on the human level. Do you think there is an endpoint? Have you reached an endpoint? No. Um, my sense is that the the formless and the form are both infinite in nature. And once we work through what Eckhart Tolle refers to as the pain body, and that begins to dissolve, what happens as it's dissolving is it gets much easier to meet it and to be present with the sensations because it's less intense because the energy is dissolving and our presence is deepening. So it just gets easier and that's a good thing. But as we move deeper in the system, we start to access ancestral traumas and collective traumas and even past life traumas can start to bubble up. So it's better to change the way we relate with trauma and enjoy it and use it as a tool for deepening in presence rather than trying to get rid of it and get to the end. Yeah, I agree. And I don't think there is an end. And like you said, it doesn't mean you can't enjoy your true nature, but that also doesn't mean you're, you're perfect if there is such a thing or, or that there isn't going to be ongoing purification and integration and growth of, in various ways. Yeah, to me, our true nature is divine perfection. It's all that is. It's the formless essence that animates all form and it's oneness. Uh, it's connected, it's unconditional love, it's peace, it's beauty. And we're also this temporary expression of form 
which is imperfectly perfect. There's always room for improvement. We can always become kinder, more compassionate, more loving, more gentle on that level. Yeah, I forget exactly how it went, but there was some Zen monk or teacher who said to his students, you're all perfect just the way you are, and you could all use improvement. (laughs) (laughs) A little earlier you were saying how it's important that our desire for this be top priority. You know, we'd be willing to die for it or whatever. So this is a kind of a dumb question, but so does that mean everybody should quit their jobs and go to India and get a nanny for the kids and take off? (laughs) It's not a prerequisite to go to India for this. Awakening can happen anywhere and in any situation. So it's more about our inner state of being where every single moment, wherever we are, whoever we're with, whatever we're doing, giving our attention to that. And the primary focus is within. What if you're a surgeon or an airline pilot or something and your job demands, you know, really intense focus, people's lives depend on it. Can you do that and still have your primary focus be within without diminishing your focus on the task at hand? Absolutely. It's not that when we become fully present in this moment and fully aware of our inner experience that we become like a a zombie. Actually, we become much more efficient because our energy is not being wasted on thinking about conversations that we had with our husband or wife this morning or what I'm going to do after the surgery is finished, we're more distracted then. It brings us fully present into the now. In that, we become connected to the universal intelligence. We become part of that unified field. So it's more important and they'll become much more efficient. Yeah, there's a verse in the Bhagavad Gita, which is yoga is skill in action. And what is meant by yoga there is not the physical postures, but being in union with the, with the divine results in greater efficiency and skill in our active life. Yeah, because then our actions don't come from the conditioned behaviors and the egoic self, but they're born from a deeper wisdom, the words that we speak arise from the silence and the actions that arise are actions that are beneficial to the whole and are in harmony with that unified nature. So we contribute to positively to the collective field rather than creating more stress and chaos. Yeah, good question came in from Dan in London who asks, would you be able to describe the difference between compassion and being sorry or, pit- or pitying people? How can one be compassionate without themselves suffering? Similar to that other question, but perhaps uh, is asking for a bit of an elaboration. So if we pity someone, then usually there's a story running in a mind like, oh, poor them, they're, they're suffering. And we're perceiving this moment through a filter 
of that story and we're experiencing the other person as a concept, as a story in our mind that this happened to them and now they're suffering. When we become deeper in presence and we're more in tune with this unified field, then we begin to feel people from a deeper level and relate to them from that deeper level where it's not a conceptual self, Louise, relating with the conceptual self, Rick, but there's me experiencing myself in another physical form, looking back at myself and enjoying the beauty of seeing myself in another form. And that opens us up to this flow of unconditional love. And the compassion is a result of this opening and relating on a deeper level rather than from the mental conceptual level where everything is perceived through filters of separation. Yeah, that's nice. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And you have a blog post entitled Seeing the Divine. You can see everyone's true being if you look with the right eyes. Let's loop back a little bit to your personal story. At a certain point, channeling started happening. I don't think you tried to develop it or something. It just started happening. So let's, mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about that, that episode or that period of your life. Yeah, so that was after I'd been to India and experienced this non-dual awakening in Muja Satsang, there was a recognition that it's not true to go back to my old life. There was no question. I wasn't going back to teaching. And my money started running out and there was a realization, okay, well, so what am I going to do now? And there was a a clear feeling in the heart that of wanting to allow this divine intelligence to use this physical expression for whatever it wanted. I was totally open. That was the only thing that I wanted, really. I I kind of gave up the, the personal desire and said, okay, just your will is... Burned. Thy will be done, that kind of a thing? Thy um, will be done, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I made a prayer, and in this prayer, which just really came from my heart, like, please, just speaking to the intelligence of life, please use me or show me what you want. And if it has shown me that, okay, I want you to clean toilets for the rest of your life. I had the willingness to do that. I just I didn't care. I just wanted it to be in alignment with that deeper knowing. And so I don't remember if it was the next day or the day after. I never really made the connection at the time. It's only looking back that I made the connection between what happened next and that prayer. I was lying on the bed meditating and my body went into this kind of numb state like almost like paralyzation 
and I felt this this kind of pressure come here and it it felt like something wanted to come through like information wanted to come through did it feel like a, a chick was trying to hatch from an egg almost as if <laughs> there was of. a pecking from the inside <laughs> yeah kind of I had this feeling like if someone were to ask a question then this tap could open and it could just flow out and at that moment my partner came in the room so I was in this deep state of paralyzation where I was like, I could barely speak. And I just kind of whispered, ask me a question. <laughs> and he did, he looked at me like I'm lying on the bed. What, what's, what's going on with her? And said it again, ask me a question. He said, what do you want for dinner? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and he said, Louise, are you okay? What's going on? So I realized, okay, he's not going to get it. And I came out of this meditation and I told him my experience. And I said, and the next day I said, okay, I'll try it and I'll see if that happens again. And this time, ask a question. And, and so I did it again. And he started asking questions and this, this information started coming through, which turned into channeling. I was doing that for a few years. I've interviewed some channelers, you know, Bashar through Daryl Anka and Suzanne Giesman and Paul Selig and others. And it's very interesting. They all take on a different way of speaking, as you did when you used to channel. It's like a whole different voice comes through. I have a few questions that I, I sometimes wonder about. One is... Well, obviously, your intuition was opening. Third eye, sixth chakra. These are sort of skeptical questions, but they might help clear other people's doubts and understanding, too. One is, I wonder if sometimes, I wonder if people are just who do this are just tapping into a, a deep level of creativity where you can fabricate all kinds of stories and information, like a good science fiction writer or something. And it's not that you're actually channeling some collective from the Pleiades, but that that is the explanation or the definition that is used to give some kind of context to what you're saying. But it's actually not from these beings 500 million light years away. It's um, actually just coming from the, the unified field, the field of all possibilities, the field of the home of all knowledge in which all information resides. And you, you're just kind of mm. tapping into that and serving as a channel for that? Well, ultimately, everything is coming from that field, whether it's directly from that field or it's through a Pleiadian collective, because where are they getting the information from? Yeah, that field. And really, there's no way to know this. I don't know the answer. And a lot of people asked me that when I was channeling, like, how do you know that it's real? And I always said, I don't know that it's real, but I just invite you to listen. And if it resonates and you find it helpful, great. And if it doesn't, great. Good answer. Did you find yourself saying things that Louise Kay had no knowledge of, but they were just coming out all of a sudden? Rarely. Most of the time, it felt like this energy or... These beings, I'll just speak it like that because that's what felt like it was my experience. It felt like they were using the information that was 
already somewhere in the system. And my sense is that maybe not enough integration had happened for that information to be shared directly. And so they were kind of giving a helping hand somehow when that connection was made, it was able to come through. That's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, if they, if someone had asked you about Einstein's theory of general relativity, you wouldn't have been able to say much. Even if those beings knew about it, it wouldn't have been able to come through Louise Kay very well. They had to sort of play with what your equipment provided. Yeah, that's what it felt like. Like they could use what was here and they were coming through this. For the most part, there were a few cases when little bits came through. So obviously you wouldn't have been able to channel in Japanese or something, but you had to use, your instrument wasn't designed for that. Yeah. Those who are listening to this, if you, if you have any more questions about channeling, feel free to send them in too. Why the change in tone of voice? Why do channelers sound a little strange when they do it? I don't know, really. It, my experience is that I would connect to this energy and then it would somehow affect the energy of the body and the voice. Maybe the information coming through had a different frequency than if it just comes directly from here and that affects it. I don't really know, but I just kind of surrendered to it and let it happen. Were you kind of a trance channeler like Edgar Casey, where you didn't even know what was going on or were you aware of yourself sitting in a chair and at the same time doing the channeling? No, I was fully present all the time. And so I was kind of learning from that information that was coming through and applying it in my own life. Icon, that was the name of the collective that you channeled. Did you sometimes ask them your own questions or just field questions from people you were doing this for? No, I never asked them anything personal. And it, it felt like it wasn't for that. And just never felt the need to either. It felt like it was for other people. Did you notice any deleterious influences from it? Did you feel tired or drained or anything like that as a result of it? Most of the time I felt energized after it. On a few instances afterwards I felt tired or drained. If the person that was interacting with Icon was... Like a few times it happened, they weren't really interested and they were just aggressive. And you mean somebody um, in the audience, they were being kind of mean or rude or something? Yeah. Yeah. I think because my system was so open and kind of vulnerable when I was in that channeling state that it would affect me. But it, it only happened like one or two times. So, how long did you do it all together? The channeling was about two years. Okay. And you actually. It became an income stream, right? You were able to travel around the world and channel and people would come and didn't have to clean toilets. <laughs> yeah, I actually didn't really like have that in mind. And it, it just kind of organically started growing where I was doing it for fun and friends were like, oh, this is fun. I want to ask a question. And then word spread and someone else wanted to ask a question and hey, why don't I do sessions for people doing this? I put a few videos on YouTube just for fun, and it kind of exploded. 
those videos are still there if people want to see them. Bashar is, I think, my second most popular interview, and the others are pretty popular too. I have found that healers and channelers and things like that, they become very popular. And I sometimes get the feeling like people like someone who can do it for them, as opposed to someone that says, here, practice this technique and see me in a week or see me in a year. There's some fascination with somebody who can do it for us. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I'm feeling much more resonance with what is being shared now. With the channeling, there's also a lot of projection, like uh, these beings are all-knowing and I can just ask them the answer and they can tell me what to do. One of the main messages of ICON is that, look, we're not interested in that. We want to support you to get in touch with this yourself, to yeah. get in touch with your own inner knowing, to really empower people. And to me, it feels more important that we, we give up that projection and, and connect to our own inner knowing and our own inner guidance. Yeah, and of course that happens with earthly teachers too, where mm. in some cases it seems to be all about them, you know, <laughs> and, oh, aren't I special? And, uh, you know, people project all kinds of things onto them and um, and begin to actually undermine their own common sense and, and their own, you know, capabilities. Um, whereas other teachers really seem good at, keeping things balanced and not letting people get into that, um, that dependent state. Mm. Yeah. I, I always tell people like, no matter who it is that tells you something, it doesn't matter if they're the most enlightened being on the planet, your own inner knowing comes first. I'll tell you a story. I told it last week. I promise I'm not going to tell this again next week. I just heard this the other day from Swami Sarvapriyananda, but some guy came to Ramana and he said, Ramana, what should I do? And Ramana said, oh, know yourself. You know, the guy said, I'm a great devotee of Narayana. And, and Ramana said, that's fine. And he said, so when I die, will I be able to go to Narayana's abode? And Ramana said, sure. And he said, oh, great. Will I be able to talk to him? And Ramana said, sure. And he said, will Narayana talk to me? And Ramana said, oh, yeah. So he said, well, what will he say to me? And Ramana said, he'll say, know yourself. <laughs> <laughs> two questions about the channeling still. As you did it for two years, you know, initially you had felt this awakening in the sixth chakra. Did that open more and more as you did the channeling? Did the channeling become a a means through which this chakra could get cleared out even more and be wide open. No, it didn't really feel like that. It felt like the clearing and the integration was happening in the whole system. Okay, so it didn't just enliven this. The channeling actually had a, a clearing and integrating effect on all of you, on your whole system. No, it, it didn't feel like it was the channeling that was doing that. It felt like the dedication to living fully present in the now and meeting everything that came up. And there were a lot of traumas in the system that came up and a lot of releases happened and a lot of seeings of 
unconscious conditionings and behavioral patterns. So as they were more seen, they began to fall away. And as the energies were processed, the system started to open and a more higher consciousness began to move through. So that happened regardless of the channeling. It probably would have been happening whether or not you were channeling. Channeling was just something that was going on. That's my sense. Okay, good. So finally, what was the intuition that it was time to stop channeling? How did that realization come about? How did you make that transition? There was a a growing feeling of something just wanting to express like this without the channeling. I had the intuitive knowing that the the channeling was going to come to an end. I could feel that something new was birthing. Icon spoke to me directly one day. It was only the second time they'd ever spoken to me directly, and they said, we, we shall be leaving soon. And, and I knew it, and it felt right before they said it. So I wasn't, like, disappointed. It was more like, oh, yeah, I know. And then it was, like, pretty quick after that information came that it fell away. And I was doing group channeling meetings in Rishikesh at the time, and I had these posters all around town. So I showed up at this meeting, and everyone came to see me channel. And I said, look, it's not true for me anymore. Interesting. They want their money back? <laughs> uh, well, it was by donation. So yeah, yeah. Some of them walked out and mm-hmm. some of them stayed. And yeah, it was really nice. They, they came to me and said, oh, I appreciate that you're following your truth. Yeah, that's it good. Nice. Do you get the feeling that there are higher entities of various sorts like ICON? There could be a great many of them who are very much concerned about and involved with the condition of the earth at this time and that are doing what they can from their level to help it out? My sense is, yeah. Okay, good. A few questions came in. Let's do those now. Roel from Spain asks, why do spiritual teachers often place oneness above manyness? Can oneness and manyness not go hand in hand, like equals, so to say? I'm fine with both. Why would manyness be an illusion or construction? Why would there even be manyness if oneness would suffice? It's a good question, actually. Well, when we experience and perceive reality and relate with the world from the perspective of manyness, we're relating from a perspective ultimately of separation. And that sense of separation is painful for us. On some level, there's a deep sense underlying that, that something's not quite right, something's not quite fulfilled. We often try to fill that hole, get that fulfillment through experiences or waiting for something to happen in the future. And it's often related to our conditioning that we picked up like when you meet your life partner then you'll be happy because they'll make you happy or when you get successful then people recognize you and you feel like you have some worth or value 
or when you get rich, then you'll be happy. And, and so our focus becomes on striving to get and attain and achieve these things. And it, it's always focused on some point in the future when I get there. And that causes us to miss the beauty and the intimacy of this moment. And we never really experience a deep fulfillment or satisfaction because that's just not possible from that perspective of separation. It's fragmented. And so when we look deeper and we go beyond the physical reality and the conceptual sense of that individual self and we open to what I call our true nature, which is our formless essence, this pure, open space of loving awareness that loves to dance and create and express itself in form, then that brings a a deep sense of fulfillment and inner peace just in being and we don't need anything outside to complete us or make us happy just in being itself there's already a deep satisfaction it's not that the formless and the form are separate from each other there's no separation between them the 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 formless is the essence that animates the forms and the f- the form is temporary so it's born and it dies and the formless essence is unchanging it's infinite uh, yeah most people have heard the analogy of the ocean that the the waves arise and it's it seems like the wave is somehow separate, but it's made of the same water and it's born from the ocean and it lives its limited life, its expression of form, and it returns to the ocean. Good. I would just say to Raoul that there, there are different teachings for different people and different levels of teaching. And um, no one teaching is necessarily appropriate for all people at all stages of their development. For instance, the Gotapada did a commentary on the Manduka Upanishad, and the whole thing is this deep logical argument about how the creation actually never arose in the first place, the, the rope never became a snake, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and it's, in a way, it's, it's definitely true at its own level. But then even he did another whole scripture thing that he wrote which was all praise to the divine mother you know and the the divine play of creation and so on so if somebody tries to kind of emphasize one particular perspective to the exclusion of all others it usually ends up being a kind of a lopsided approach which is not broadly useful (laughs) you might take on it Someone from Zandvoort, Roel, it's the same guy, from Zandvoort asks, is right and wrong at the level of the soul the same as right and wrong at the human level? Well, I think we'd have to clarify what is meant by soul here. Because 
not really sure what the question is asking, but from the perspective of the formulas, there is no duality, there is no right or wrong. It, everything just is. And it's the mind which perceives reality through these filters of dualism and segregates everything into right, wrong, spiritual, not spiritual, good, bad, desirable, undesirable. And it's important also that we don't fall into the spiritual trap of saying, oh, well, there is no right or wrong, so I can just do whatever I want. <laughs> when we know ourselves as our true self, any words that labels it or it is insufficient so we can call it the true self when we know ourselves as that and the system is totally clear that expresses through the system wisdom peace love harmony just that's its nature so it doesn't need to think like oh is this the wrong right or wrong thing to do it just naturally contributes harmony and it's where we have these veils or filters of our conditioned behaviors or traumas that act like a wall or blockage to that natural expression coming through that cause us as humans to act out evil in the world so all that's required really is for us to look at these veils or these filters and see where they are, how they're playing themselves out. And as they're seen from the perspective of higher consciousness, they begin to dissolve and fall away. And so that natural expression that comes through becomes more and more purified. Good answer. The Tao Te Ching has this whole thing about how if everyone in society were in tune with the Tao, then you wouldn't need all these laws because people would act spontaneously rightly and not be harming each other in various ways. But it's when the Tao is lost and when very few people are, are in tune with it that you need structures of law and moral guidelines and so on and so forth in order for people not to make a big mess of things and harm each other. Like you say, and I have heard teachers actually say that, oh, well, it's all absolute. There is no relative and therefore I can do whatever I want. It's all an illusion anyway. Fine, you know, end up in an illusory jail if you like, but <laughs> prison. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. There, there, there are, you know, absolute reality does not negate or obviate relative realities and the rules which govern them. Yeah, and it seems to me that this vigilance is required every single moment. Also, when one is performing the role as a teacher or a therapist to ensure that the ego mind doesn't unconsciously hijack that role to act out unconscious traumas in the system and use the spiritual teachings to do so because that can be very dangerous yes it can there's a great quote from padmasambhava he said although my awareness is as vast as the sky my attention to karma which means action is as fine as a grain of barley flour so what that means is you can be a very high being, and yet you still have to be on your toes. 
there's even a greater preciseness and delicacy and intuitive sensitivity. In fact, there's immediate feedback, wouldn't you say, Louise? I mean, if you, if you do go off the mark a little bit, you, you get smacked more readily and notice it, and it helps to keep you on track. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The problem can be that if the ego mind also infuses to the point where it says, okay, I've got it or I know, then life can be shouting something at you and still you won't hear it. And it seems to me that there can be teachers or expressions of life that are very, very clear and have beautiful gifts and very clear pointings that are coming through. And at the same time, there can be a huge distortion or unconscious trauma or something acting out that hasn't been seen. So that's why it's so important that as seekers, we don't project that if somebody has experienced realization or non-dual awareness or they're performing the function of a teacher, that everything they say or everything they do is the absolute truth to really be vigilant and, and uh, discerning. Hear, hear. I heartily agree with you. In fact, along with Jack O'Keefe and Craig Holliday and Miranda McPherson and Mariana Kaplan, I helped to um, establish something called the Association for Spiritual Integrity, which is spiritual-integrity.org, to try to popularize in the spiritual culture that ethics are important and, uh, and are an important component of the spiritual path, which traditionally they have been understood to be, if you, you read Patanjali or any of the ancient sources. But a lot of times that's been glossed over in contemporary spirituality, and there have been all these messy situations, you know. And, and like you say, students might sit there really admiring a teacher, and the teacher seems so good in so many ways and so inspiring, and yet starts going off beam a little bit and the students begin to think, well, this doesn't seem right, but hey, this guy is supposed to be enlightened and I'm not, so what do I know? And they abdicate their own discernment. Here's another question. This is from Marilyn in Texas. Uh, Marilyn asks, how do we balance living in the present and planning for the future? I always feel like I have to plan life changes to navigate around constant, unavoidable, fear-based messages entering the mind. I love Louise, by the way. I've been following her for a long time. Her tender energy is so soothing. She's a beautiful embodiment of the divine feminine. And then she has two hearts on the screen. (laughs) (laughs) Who's this question from? Marilyn in Texas. Thank you, Marilyn. So if we need to make plans for the future, we can make the plans while staying fully present in the now. For example, if me and Rick want to schedule a Skype call, we can have a conversation about when is there a free spot in your calendar. And as we're talking, our attention is fully present in the now and we're deeply connected. If there's fear-based thoughts arising, then it's great that you're already aware of those fear-based thoughts it's not necessarily the, the best way to try to avoid them by making plans, but simply 
observe them and don't give any power to them. So remember that those thoughts are not speaking the truth. You see, if you if you make a plan to do something that's coming from a fear of experiencing a fear, then life's going to reflect that back and it's not coming from your deeper truth. In order to allow the future to unfold from the expression of life rather than the mind's fear-based ideas, we have to first be fully present and also aware of how it feels in the body. And we become like an empty vessel and life moves through us rather than us functioning from this mental level of, oh, what if this happens in the future, then maybe I should do this. And everything's kind of logical and analytical and trying to avoid things or manipulate and control life. When we give up all that and we just be, then the desire of what we want to do in the future doesn't come from the mind's desire, but it comes from a deeper intuitive knowing. It's like we're operating and relating with life on a different level. So the key is to not engage with those thoughts. When you recognize them arising, bring your attention fully present in the moment. And notice how it feels in the body. Often if there's a repetitive thought pattern, then there's an unprocessed energy or trauma on an energetic level that's wanting some attention. So it's good to ask, okay, how does it feel in the body right now? And most of the time we become aware that there's a contraction somewhere. And then we just be with that and feel that and give gentle loving attention to it. And as we give it that gentle loving attention, it begins to soften and open, and the energy releases, and it stops producing those fear-based thoughts, and it creates space in the system for that natural flow of life to express. Let me make up a concrete example. This is probably not what Marilyn is thinking about, but this might help to bring it down to earth a little bit more. So, Marilyn is from Texas, and COVID pandemic is pretty bad in Texas. And let's say Marilyn has kids, and she's trying to decide whether she should send the kids back to school in a few weeks. And, um, you know, there's implications to that. The kids might get sick, or maybe it wouldn't be so bad for them, but they might bring it home to grandma. A lot of people are actually saying that they feel like the fear is the greatest pandemic right now more than the disease, although I don't know if I agree with that. But, you know, a lot of people are feeling fear. And a lot of people are being kind of reckless and saying, I'm not afraid. I don't need to wear a mask and I, I can go in the store and don't make me wear a mask. And, you know, there's this stigma about being careful in some people's minds. But in any case, there's a lot of fear in society right now. And maybe, and Marilyn is obviously feeling some for some reason. I don't know what the actual reasons. But if we take a concrete example like that, which actually has very practical implications, you know, it could make a big difference what you do or don't do. How would you then address her concern? Well, it would be the same with any decision-making process. So if we try to make a decision based on the level of the mind, then the mind will rationalize and look at the information available, make pros and cons. It can be helpful, but there's a way that we can access information on a deeper level, which when we move from that place and take action from that place, 
then it results in more flow and coherence and harmony in life. So we become very still and open to the silence that's here, beyond the mental noise, noticing the awareness in which the thoughts are arising and rest the attention there and kind of tune in and allow the knowing to arise from there. This is how we move through life. So life presents a situation and we can either react to that if we're functioning from the mind level or we can respond to it if we're connected and in tune with this deeper wisdom. And when we're responding to life, there's never any stress or problems, really. There's just appropriate action that's taken. These are the options, and this one feels right. And then we take action on it. And all of that energy that goes to, oh, what shall I do? And worrying and fear, it's just, it's not necessary anymore. Yeah, there's a line from the Upanishads which says, um, certainly all fear is born of duality. You can kind of get that because if you're in duality, if you are separate from things, then things can threaten you. But if you appreciate the underlying unity of life, then what can threaten what? You know, who can threaten whom? (laughs) Yeah. I think probably if one is stranded in a dualistic condition, then even if you're not feeling fear, there's a foundational fear that underlies things all the time. Yeah, absolutely. It's like the system is in a constant state of fight or flight mode, is in a constant state of stress or anxiousness. Where's the next hit from life going to come from? Interesting. Um, So hopefully, Marilyn, that answered your question. And if it didn't, then feel free to send a follow-up question. Here's one from Tim in Victoria, British Columbia. He said, I accept the premise that there is a fundamental ground of being, awareness, that is intrinsically unified and whole. I have touched this ground on many occasions, but find such a resistance to settle fully into it. This resistance seems to come from an inability to deeply trust. Can you share your understanding of the nature of trust? So when we're surrendering fully to our true nature, what happens is the ego mind doesn't just say, okay, great idea, yeah, surrender. (laughs) (laughs) It puts up a fight. It's it's not going to let you go that easy. And it's fighting for its life. It's fighting for control. It's fighting to stay in charge. And it's saying, no, you can't trust that. That's not safe. Stay here with me. I'll keep you comfortable. It's familiar. We know this. We've lived this together our whole life. I'm your best friend. And what's required is in that moment when that fear arises or that lack of trust, to surrender everything in that moment and open fully to that fear. It's coming to mind this story of the Buddha when he was sitting in meditation and all the the different demons came to him in images and 
it's like that. We just maintain that inner Buddha nature, no matter what comes up. We stay still and have the willingness to open and feel whatever arises. It's kind of the old hut and palace analogy. If, let's say, you've been living in this shoddy little hut, and off in the distance there's this beautiful palace, and someone says, "That's your palace. Leave the hut and move into it," and you start to go towards the hut, and then you think, "Wait a minute. What if it's not really my palace? Or what if I get eaten by a tiger along the way? Or, you know, um, my hut wasn't so bad after all. It was actually kind of cozy." And you see, so you scurry back to the hut. But you know, like you said earlier. You don't do this in one fell swoop. It's not like you're doing something wrong if you don't find yourself having shifted into a all-pervading cosmic consciousness or something like that on day one. It takes a while, stage by stage, level by level, to uh, unwind all this. Yeah, it's like one of the great spiritual paradoxes that there is nothing to do. You are already that. It is done. And at the same time, in time and space, this process happens. And there's an unfolding and there's integration. And for most people, even after there's direct experience of the true self or non-dual awakening, there's a, a kind of falling asleep again and waking up and moving, shifting backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards until we become more and more deeply anchored in this natural state of being and um, I like this comparison to a baby learning to walk where first it it's crawling and that to me feels kind of like the seeker mode and and we're meditating practicing and then at some point it stands up and that's like the first recognition and then what happens the baby falls over again but the baby doesn't say oh i failed i lost it i i can't do it again (laughs) (laughs) and then it falls down it gets up and it walks a few steps and the falling down is part of the process it's only the mind that has an idea that this shouldn't be happening in the process this isn't part of the learning that makes us think that something's wrong. But it's not. It's perfect just like that. Yeah, that's good. The reality is what it is. People or no people, body or no body, universe or no universe. Um, but what we're talking about is actually living it uh, as a human being. And therefore, the instrument through which it it is lived has to be rendered more and more suitable for that that state it has to be refined purified you know integrated and so on yeah so we we experience this opening to higher consciousness and then in a way that's like the beginning and the process of deepening and integration starts and a lot of healing takes place on that journey and on that human level, it seems like there is no end to it. Somebody sent me a quote the other day, and I actually emailed it to you. I think I'll just read it out just for fun. It's from something called the uh, Kybalion, a study of the hermetic philosophy of ancient Egypt and Greece. And here's how it goes. It relates to what we're saying. 
do not make the mistake of supposing that the little world you see around you, the earth, which is a mere grain of dust in the universe, is the universe itself. There are millions upon millions of such worlds and greater. And there are millions of millions of such universes in existence within the infinite mind of the all. And even in our own little solar system, there are regions and planes of life far higher than ours, and beings compared to which we earthbound mortals are as the slimy life forms that dwell on the ocean's bed when compared to man. There are beings with powers and attributes higher than man has ever dreamed of the gods possessing. And yet these beings were once you, and still lower, and you will be even as they, and still higher in time, for such is the destiny of man as reported by the illumined. And death is not real, even in the relative sense. It is but birth to a new life, and you shall go on and on and on to higher and still higher planes of life for eons upon eons of time. The universe is your home, and you shall explore its farthest recesses before the end of time. You are dwelling in the infinite mind of the all, and your possibilities and opportunities are infinite, both in time and space. And at the end of the grand cycle of all eons, when the all shall draw back into itself all of its creations, you will go gladly, for you will then be able to know the whole truth of being at one with the all. And actually, that last line, you can know the whole truth of being at one with the all before the universe goes back into dissolution. You can know it now, as you were saying. So maybe there will be some ultimate final knowing at that point, but you don't have to wait for that. Mm, for me, I, I love the, the mystery and the magic of this universe. And I love not to know. And that's part of the beauty of this dance of creation. It's so immense beyond what the mind can imagine if we even just try to comprehend with our mind the size of the known universe and the billions of galaxies, to comprehend that is... There's no words, and there's such a beauty and magic in the mystery of everything. And to see life through these eyes... It brings life to life to see the magic in every moment and the beauty in even the most mundane things, the most everyday objects. The fact that we are alive and experiencing this form, it's incredible. That's beautifully put. Have you written any books? You'd be a good writer. <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> Not yet. Do you tend to write little things? I know you have a bunch of blog posts. Do you express yourself um, in written word very often? Sometimes. You might start collecting that stuff. You could turn it into a book. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautifully put. kind of reminds me of the, 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 the idea of God, which is that the divine intelligence that is behind all this or perme- and permeating all this because a lot of times in spiritual circles, there's a lot of talk of the absolute and the, the unmanifest and all, and it sounds kind of plain vanilla. But, you know, when you actually consider the wonder and mystery and beauty and incredible complexity and vastness and all of the universe, 
it seems to me much richer, much more profound in a way than an emphasis on just unmanifest flatness being. Yeah, to experience that being from the perspective of the mind is the most boring thing in the universe. It's like, it's torturous. <laughs> but to know oneself as that and to be a part of this unified field of intelligence, it's the most joyous experience. Yeah. All the points you make are so good. Somebody was talking about depression the other day and, and I was you know, the old analogy of a fish being thirsty while it's swimming in the ocean or looking for the ocean or some such thing, even though it's immersed in the ocean. And, you know, one of the characteristics of this ultimate reality that we keep talking about is, is ananda or bliss. And if a person is feeling depressed or bored or life seems to be empty and meaningless, it's like that fish. You want to, you want to elaborate mm-hmm. on that a bit? I really love what Jeff Foster says about depressed. I don't know if you've heard his take on it. I know Jeff and I've interviewed him, but I don't remember what he said about that. Okay. So he terms depressed as deep rest. It's the system just longing to stop. I'm not quoting Jeff here. Just to take a break and take a deep, deep rest. Often when we have the experience of depression, there's this idea that there's something wrong with me now. I'm, I'm broken. I need fixing somehow. I need to figure out how to feel differently, how to reject this experience that's arising. I need to take pills or change my diet or do something. If we do the opposite of that and we very, very gently get curious about the experience and look closer at it, then what we notice is probably there's thought patterns and stories arising that are identified with, which are of a negative nature. And by watching them, by observing them, we're able to disidentify from those stories and recognize that the ego mind, it's creating a sense of identity through perceiving reality in this way and often it feels a distorted sense of pleasure by feeling suffering and like a victim. So we're able then to disidentify from the mental level of suffering and look at what's experienced in the body. How is, exp- how is depression experienced in the body? And when we really look with curiosity, we probably find that there's like some pressure on the chest or a contraction in the belly. Rather than trying to get rid of that and making it wrong, if we just very gently, I see you, I feel you, it's okay that you're here, open up to it and let it be okay, then that sensation, which is labeled as depression, becomes the gateway for deepening into being and accessing our natural state of joy. Yeah, that's nice. And I like the deep rest angle. Because, I mean, sometimes depression can be caused by a backlog of fatigue. You know, you're just burdened by tiredness. And a, some, a few good nights sleep and some nice, deep, restful meditations can totally transform your, your perspective. 
But whether we call it fatigue or trauma or what, there doesn't seem to be a tendency for the system to accumulate stuff. And it can't be a clear mirror or channel for that deep bliss that pervades everything if that accumulation is there. So we've got to clear it out. Yeah, yeah. We first have to meet what Eckhart calls the pain body. And in meeting it and being present with it, we deepen in being because you have to be, you have to increase your level of presence in order to be able to meet those sensations because they can be intense and they can be really unpleasant. I often use this analogy of weightlifting. If you want to get these huge muscles, which is like to be deeply anchored in presence. Like you, mine, yeah, she. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be able to lift those big weights, but you can't lift the big weights until you start with the little weights. And, and so you just meet what you can and be present with what you can consistently, moment to moment, open into the inner experience. And as you do so, you're able to lift bigger and bigger weights. You're able to meet more and more intensity of these energies. Would you say that the deeper traumas or the deeper impressions, those are not the ones you're going to meet initially, like with the weights. You start out naturally with the smaller ones, and then you get on to the bigger ones. And the bigger ones don't seem as big as they would have if you had started with them, because now you have more capacity to meet them. Would that be correct to say? Yeah, it seems like that. It seems like uh, it's like an onion with these layers and layers. And what I'm coming to understand more and more in this work that I'm doing with people is when you get to the core of it, we all seem to have pretty much the same core trauma, which is a deep sense of abandonment and feeling unloved or not worthy in some way. Well, we're just about at the end of our two hours. Here's a nice concluding remark from Marilyn in Texas, who we spoke with earlier. She said, thank you for sharing such helpful knowledge and raising up the love frequency in the collective. So I think that everyone listening to this uh, will concur with Marilyn that they feel appreciation for what you're doing in that way. Mm. Definitely helping. Thank you. What would you like to say in terms of how people can connect with you or interact with you or what do you have going on that people can plug into? Um, I have right now with this lockdown situation, I'm doing twice a week online open Zoom meetings by donation. Next one's tomorrow, actually. So everyone's welcome to join that and they can go to my website, louisek.net, and they can I think it's louisek.net slash Zoom is a page to register. And there's probably those. a link on there. Some, on, you have an events Yeah, uh, yeah it's here. on the events page. Yeah, there it is. I just went to it on the screen. So you, you click on events and it takes you to the Zoom meetings here. And then you can click the more info thing and, and sign up for it. Yeah. Then on July 1st and 2nd of August, there's an online weekend retreat, which is an opportunity for us to together deepen into presence and and to meet these energies or these repressed emotions traumas in the system and to explore together have you done any of those before weekend online retreats this is the first online one they usually 
in groups, they're in different cities, but everything's on hold at the moment because of the situation. So I said, hey, why not do it online? Yeah, I hope that works out. I, I would have a hard time doing one because there's always so much going on around here. But uh, yeah. it's, it's nice to get away to a retreat place if you can. But I hope that that goes well. There is a, a five-day retreat in North Carolina in uh, the 30th of October. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see what life wants. You probably have a, an email sign-up thing on your website here. I see. Yeah. Sub- subscribe. Yeah, yeah you, can subscribe. you can stay connected with you, and then you get notified of things that are going on. So people are welcome to do that. Well, thanks so much, Louise. I really appreciate your spending this time with us. We had quite a few people on. There were well over 300 listening during the live one, and I'm sure there'll be many more once we put this up permanently. So um, I really hope that everything goes well with you. I hope your partner can manage to get out of India, come back to Amsterdam. Louise's partner is stuck in India. We were talking about that before we started. That, um, you know, you, you continue to shine your bright light because the world needs such lights. Thank you, Rick. It's been really, really a pleasure talking to you. I enjoyed it. Yeah, you. thank you. And thanks to those who've been listening or watching, um, whether on the live feed or later on. Um, appreciate your attention. Just want to say briefly that you can subscribe to the YouTube channel if you like. Click on the subscribe button. And then if you want to be notified every time I release one of these, click on the little bell next to the YouTube channel. And that notifies you every time. But I only do one of these a week, so you're not going to get bombarded with things. And the same with the email notification system on batgap.com. If you sign up, you'll get one email a week, and you get a second one three days later if you don't open the first one, in case you missed it, email. And uh, there's a few other things there you might want to check out. The audio podcast, if you like to listen to audio things instead of sit and watch videos, and various other things. Just explore the menus, and you'll see them. So uh, thank you for listening or watching, and see you next week. Next week is a, a fellow named Andrew Hewson. When you look at his pictures, like, how could he have been a serious alcoholic and spent time in prison. He looks like a bright young kid, but apparently he had that kind of experience and then came out of it and is is really bright looking now and uh, doing great things. So we'll be speaking with Andrew next week. And the week after that is James Finley, who is an associate of Richard Rohr, a mystical contemplative Christian, Richard Rohr and Cynthia Bourgeau. So I'll be speaking with James. Anyway, we have them scheduled usually a couple months in advance, and there's an upcoming interviews page where you can see who's scheduled. So, again, thanks for listening and watching, and thanks again, Louise. Thanks, Rick. You're welcome.